Thanks for coming out today. There's a lot of good choices, so many good classes. I'd really encourage you to take advantage of the recordings and uh, listen to the ones that you're not able to go to um, personally. So I'm, I'm Chris Altrock. I preach at the Highland Church of Christ in Memphis, Tennessee. And we're talking about the Golden Triangle in this class. So we're going to close our eyes for 30 seconds. And if you're in the wrong class, but I'm really glad that you've uh, decided to take a little bit of time to talk about spiritual formation. That's really what we're talking about in this class is spiritual formation and Dallas Willard's golden triangle and three things that um, he said God uses to help us grow spiritually. And so that's, that's what we'll be looking at. I've got a handout. I've, I passed out all the copies that I have. Um, and it only has a few of the slides that I'll, I'll go through here in the presentation. All of the slides that I'll be going through are on my website, chrisaltrock.com backslash golden triangle. So if you're interested in all the slides, you can find them there. Uh, we're not going to have time to really... Uh, cover the content of all the slides because there's too much content, uh, but if you're interested in kind of exploring some of the content on the slides that we just kind of zoom past today, you can pull that up on my website, chrisaltrock.com backslash golden triangle. So we begin uh, today with this basic truth that I suspect everybody in this room accepts, but I think we just need to state it outright, and that when it and it's this, that when, when it comes to spirituality, our spiritual lives, whether we're talking about ourselves or our churches, we are on a journey. We have not arrived. Sometimes we live our lives, and sometimes our churches practice a spirituality, which suggests that we have arrived. But it's critical to acknowledge Spiritually speaking, that we have not arrived, we are on a journey. And so this golden triangle that Dallas Willard writes about really doesn't make any sense unless we acknowledge this reality. No one in this room has arrived. None of our churches have arrived. We're all on a journey. Now, there's a, if you don't get anything else out of this class, you, you might get a few good resources. So there's a great book called <coughs> Shaping of Things to Come by Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost. They're not the only guys that talk about this, but they do a particularly good job of talking about it. And we're, we're just going to, we're, we're on our way to a, a main point, okay? So we're just swinging by some stuff here. But they talk about churches and Christians who have a bounded set spirituality. And what that means is that there are Christians and churches who primarily focused on what it takes to get in with God. And once you're in with God, once you're in the church, that's, that's pretty much what our main focus is. You get baptized, you pray Jesus into your heart, you place membership, you go to the membership class, you're in, and that's pretty much what spirituality is all about. That's a bounded set. You've arrived. And that's mostly what spirituality is about. And there are a lot of churches and a lot of Christians whose spirituality is oriented around that. There are what they call fuzzy churches, fuzzy set churches of Christians. 
who uh, they don't really focus much on the boundaries and they don't really focus much on the center, on where people are going. So these are sort of Christians and churches who really have no idea what they're about. And so that could describe some of our churches, uh, maybe some of us here. But really on the other side of things are what they call centered set Christians or churches. And what's really important to them is what's at the middle, where we're headed. And they would put Jesus at the center here. Jesus is in the center, and what's important is our journey toward the center. There's, there's boundaries, there's things we do to, to move toward that center, but the critical part is the journey. It's not just about getting baptized or placing membership. The important thing is the journey that we continue on towards the center, toward Christ-likeness. Unless we accept that premise, this golden triangle doesn't make any sense. And of course, Paul emphasized this in many places. Ephesians 4.13, this work, he said, must continue until we're all joined together in what we believe and in what we know about the Son of God. Our goal is to become like a full-grown man or woman, to look just like Christ and have all his perfection. So do, you, do you get the sense that Paul has arrived? Or that the churches he's writing to have, have arrived? What's, what's the goal? No. To grow. To, to become fully grown. To become just like Christ. Or this text here in Philippians 3 where, where he's confessional about himself. I don't mean that I am exactly what God wants me to be. I've not yet reached that goal. But I continue trying to reach it and make it mine. That's what Christ Jesus wants me to do. It's the reason he made me his. Brothers and sisters, I know that I still have a long way to go. Who's writing this? Paul. <laughs> I still have a long ways to go. Wow. But there's one thing I do. I forget what's in the past, and I try as hard as I can to reach the goal before me. This is someone who's on a journey. He's not arrived. He's trying as hard as he can to reach the goal. And so what we're going to be talking about is what does God use to help us along that journey? Now, Scripture, again, we're on our way to a point here, so we're just going to, we're kind of driving six miles an hour here. Scripture doesn't, describe that journey in a lot of details. It uses these images and metaphors, goal. Uh, does somebody want to... Thank you. Images, metaphors. That doesn't describe this journey, but just so you get a little taste or flavor of the way in which some have described this journey that we're on, we'll visit some stops here. So Bernard of Clairvaux born in 1090, became a monk. He described this journey that Christians and churches are on in four stages. And we're not going to take the time to read all of this, but just so you get a sense of it. So four stages. Number one, we love ourselves for self's sake. That's where we start. And some of us never get past that. But we're selfish people. We love ourselves for ourselves' sake. That's where we start, he said. Then we move on to loving God. 
for ourselves sake for a lot of us the whole reason we turn to God is because there's something we need and and we look to God to fulfill it and again some people never grow past that but the third stage he says is loving God for God's sake so we, we learn to be in love with God simply because of who God is that's a huge leap right from loving God for self's sake to loving God for God's sake and then fourth this final stage loving self for God's sake I, I learned to accept myself and, and all that God has made me and all my limitations for God's sake and all that God's called me to do for God's sake so Bernard Clairvaux sort of painting a portrait of this journey. We haven't arrived, we're on this journey. Another famous one, Teresa of Avila, she had this vision of, of a castle made up of seven mansions, seven rooms. And as you move through these rooms, you're progressing in your spiritual journey. And again, all I'm trying to do here is give you kind of a taste of this journey and the way that people have sort of described it through history here. So uh, I'm using a source here that's sort of taken some liberty. If you read the interior, interior castle, it's actually um, a bit challenging to sort of uh, put in the modern language. So this author sort of put it in the modern language. So mansion number one, we're saved, but we still have a worldly focus. Mansion number two, we're wrestling with our divided loyalties, our loyalties to God, our loyalty to self and to the world. Mansion number three, we, we finally sort of reach this point where we're doing discipleship and our life is finally sort of in order and we're beginning to follow God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in, in a right way. Mansion number four, we sort of finally, now our hearts are engaged. Finally, we're falling in love with God. And that's kind of interesting. It's only in the fourth step here that, that our hearts really engage. And the rest of this has to do with increasing uh, depths of love. Fifth mansion, the call to union with God. So we fall in love with God. We enter into union with God. Spiritual betrothal, sort of this, this wedding with God. And then the sixth mansion, mansion mystical, or transforming union, where there's, there's no longer this, this sense of me and God but it's, it's us, and we're so close to God that his will is my will. So again, just a, a sort of a sense of how she described this journey. But the, the real question then is, so we haven't arrived, we're on a journey, and the real question is, how do we get to where we're going, to this full-grown person, to Christ-likeness? How do we get to where we're going? And so one of the ways of describing that is to use what Dallas Willard talked about. Now, Dallas Willard taught here in Southern California at USC uh, from 1965 until his death. He wrote a lot, 200 published articles and uh, many books. You may have read some of his books, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Divine Conspiracy, Renovation of the Heart. Uh, the Renovari Spiritual Formation Study Bible and 
another book. Has anybody in here ever read any Dallas Willard? A few, yeah, okay. So uh, he'd be somebody to read if you haven't read him. Uh, very, very helpful writer on the spiritual life. Tucked away in one book called The Great Omission on uh, page 25 and 26 in that book. And he, there's maybe one or two art other articles where he writes about this. Uh, it's really such a great insight, but he doesn't really spend a lot of time on it, but it's, it's a very helpful insight of his. It'd be worth the whole book, but it's just sort of a nugget that he throws in here where he talks about the golden triangle. So I'm, I'm trying to shine a light on this uh, very helpful insight. So he writes this to, to begin to introduce it. Living under the governance of heaven frees and empowers us to love as God loves. But outside the safety and sufficiency of heaven's rule, we're too frightened and angry to really love others or even ourselves. And so we arrange dreary substitutes in the form of pleasures of various kinds and loves. And that's really his concern is that so often we satisfy ourselves with dreary substitutes in our spirituality. Uh, con consider these uh, synonyms here. Bleak, spirituality, dingy, somber, monotonous, cheerless, oppressive. You know, think about the spirituality that, that exists in, in some uh, Christian communities. Dreary, uh, tedious, uneventful, uninteresting. This, this was his concern. That so often we've satisfied ourselves with a spirituality that is, that is dreary. That is not at all what God intended for us to have. And so... Uh, so his, his concern is, what do we do about that? So he writes this, page 26. If this life of faith and love from heaven is the goal of a disciple of Jesus, the natural fulfillment of the new life in Christ, how can we enter into it? While it is, in one sense, a result of God's presence within us, so the Holy Spirit, the New Testament also describes a process involved in our putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is repeatedly discussed in the Bible under three essential aspects, each inseparable from the other, all interrelated. This process can be presented in a golden triangle of spiritual transformation, for it is as precious as gold to the disciple, and each of its aspects is as essential to the whole process as three sides are to and so this then is what he presents as the golden triangle. There, there are these three. He says if you look at scripture and if you look in Christian experience, these, these are the three that God tends to use most often to help us experience the, the life that God wants us to have and, and to move us through the Christian journey. And, and probably most of us uh, would would uh, easily have written this one in spiritual disciplines. Pray, Bible study, science, biology. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, because we've attended the Pepperdine Bible lectures, 
we we could list the Holy Spirit, but there's a lot to talk about here, right? The work of the Holy Spirit within the life of the Christian and the life of the church, and uh, how neglectful we've been of that work. And then uh, I suspect hardly any of us at least would have wanted to place this here. And, and yet, upon reflection, I bet every single person in this room, upon reflection, could say that a time of trial in, in your life <coughs> has been a formative, a spiritually formative time, significantly formative time in your life. And, and so Willard says, yes, these, these are the three things that we have to pay attention to. These are the three things that deserve the most focus if we want to move along in the journey. As churches and as individuals, each as essential as a leg to a triangle, all part of the golden triangle. So what I want to do is just kind of drill down in, into each uh, one of these, give some examples and uh, uh, some practical uh teaching on each of these three. By the way, he came to these by reflecting on scripture. Here, here are just three of the texts that he reflected on. So in terms of trials, Romans 5, a powerful text. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, so suffering produces something positive. We all know that suffering produces terrible stuff, right? But it also produces, in, in God's hands, endurance, character, and hope. In terms of spiritual disciplines, Romans 6. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So we, there was a time in which we, we practiced sort of anti-spiritual disciplines. We were engaged in habits in which we were presenting our members, our, our bodies, ourselves, in practices that led to unrighteousness and lawlessness. So now, Paul says, present your members, our bodies, ourselves, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Sanctification being the process of becoming more and more holy, the journey. And so this, this is a word towards spiritual disciplines. And then the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, but if Christ is in you, and he is, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. By following the lead of the Holy Spirit through, through the power of the Holy Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. So it's these three working in concert 
that propel us through this journey of the Christian faith. So we'll just take each one and uh, spend a few minutes kind of drilling down um, and talking about them. And with each one of these, I'll give sort of a bottom line, uh, sort of a basic um, takeaway here. So this is another great source. Evan Howard has a book called The Brazos Introduction to Christian Spirituality. And he asks this question, which I think is the central question here. What attitudes or actions can we undertake that the trials of life become integrated an integrated part of intentional spiritual formation? That's, that's the bottom line question. What attitudes and actions can I embrace so that I can integrate the trials of life into my spiritual formation? And that, that's, that's a radically different way of looking at the tough stuff of life. You know, how, how can I incorporate that into my spiritual formation? Because how, how do most of us tend to look at the tough stuff of life? Raise your hand if you like it. <laughs> Joshua is in psychology, so he can counsel you. I mean, none, none of us like it, right? We go home and we complain about it, right? But here, the recommendation is find some attitudes and some practices that allow you to incorporate it into your spiritual formation. Uh, we, we tend not to embrace it as an opportunity for spiritual formation. Here's another great resource. Peter Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, did you realize that some, uh, some of our spirituality is not very emotionally healthy? <laughs> so this is a great resource uh, if you're interested in looking at what makes a spirituality that is also emotionally healthy. But... In one of his chapters, he's got two chapters on this whole issue. In one of his chapters, he makes these four points. So see, see if this is true for you or true, true for your church in terms of approaches to pain, the tough stuff of life. Some of us just deny it. We refuse to acknowledge the painful aspects of real, reality, externally or, or internally, as we just don't talk about it. How was your day? Fine. Or what happens when we gather together to worship? We, I mean, we never talk about, we never acknowledge anything bad. We just deny it. It's like it, it never happens. Uh, or two, we minimize it. We admit something's wrong, but in such a way that it appears less serious than it really was. Oh, it really wasn't that bad. It's not that big of a deal. We minimize the bad stuff. Uh, three, we intellectualize it. We give analysis, theories, generalities to avoid the personal awareness and difficult feelings. Um, so when something bad happens, you know, we, we, we put it up on the table and we analyze, you know, all the reasons why that happened and all the motives of the people that made it happen. But we don't say, man, that stinks. That makes me so angry. We, we don't own it. Or distract. We change the subject. We engage in humor. 
uh, to avoid threatening Papu. Any of that ring true for you? Are you certain? Uh, I'm going to skip that for time's sake. It's really in interesting to notice Jesus' approach to, to pain here. Uh, in this text in John 12, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? So here, here are the two approaches. He's talked about his death on the cross that's coming up. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. So Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. So as Jesus thinks about his own pain that's coming up, the hour of his own death, he says, well, I've got, I've had, I have two options before me. I could say, Father, save me. Don't, don't let me experience any pain. Give me a life that's free from the tough stuff of life. Give me a golden triangle without that leg on it. Or, I could say, Father, glorify your name. And, and what, what does that mean? In this context, what does that mean? Going to the cross. Using it for his purposes. And, and yeah, letting it be used for God's purposes. So let, let this pain be used for your purposes. That's a tough thing to say. God let this... Um, we, we don't often have... Um, uh, we don't often know the pain that's coming our way, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't know of the... Uh, being fired from the job, you know, three days ahead of time or something like that. But when it happens, what a tough thing to say, God, use this for your glory. Let this firing be for your glory. Let this uh, health diagnosis be for your glory. But that's what Jesus is modeling here for us. The pain trials can be used for spiritual formation and, and often are. Not that God causes the firing from the job or the health issue, but he can use that for spiritual formation. Uh, let me read this from this best-selling book. <laughs> what does this mean? What is the significance of asking God to be glorified in the midst of, horrendous, of a horrendous hour? The word glorify is a sibling of the word glory Glory crops up early in John's Gospel. He introduces the story of Jesus with these words. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John then discloses what this glory is. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He's made him known. Jesus' glory is the means by which he reveals God to us. This God-revealing glory shined brightly through the miracles of Jesus. 
For example, after Jesus changed water to wine, John records this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Regarding the raising of Lazarus, Jesus states, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God. Jesus said to her, did, not, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Through the miracles, Jesus revealed God. He showed the power and majesty of God. These miracles were like spotlights illuminating God. We see something about God we would not have seen without them. And Jesus believes that this hour can do something similar. His suffering on the cross can shed light upon God. We'll be able to see something about God we would have not seen without this hour. And so as Jesus awaits his agony, he prays for God to be glorified. He asks the darkness of the hour provide the perfect setting for God to be illuminated. Jesus requests God publicize something about his person through the misery of this moment. Rather than save me so that I'll be safe, Jesus prays, show yourself so that you'll be seen. Jesus embraces this hour because he knows others will see God in a way they wouldn't have seen without this hour. Humanity will observe God's love and faithfulness in ways they couldn't without this hour. This trial will become a viewfinder through which others will more clearly picture the heart of God. Thus, rather than run from it, Jesus runs toward it. He prays that in this hour of risk and cost, the light will shine upon God in a way it never has uh, before. John Ortberg, uh, back in 2011, wrote, wrote an article about all this, and he wrote about a study where people were asked, what, what helps you to grow the most spiritually? Talk about a time that helped you to grow the most spiritually. And he says the number one contributor to spiritual growth was not transformational teaching. Bummer. <laughs> um, it was not being the small group. It was not reading deep books. It was not energetic worship experiences. It was not finding meaningful ways to serve. It was suffering. People said they grew more during seasons of loss, pain, and crisis than they did at any other time. One line of thinking is that adversity can lead to growth. Another line of thinking is that the highest levels of growth can't be achieved without adversity. It may be that somehow adversity leads to growth in a way that nothing else does. It's a pretty powerful statement. And pretty remarkable that most of the people in that study said, yeah, it was, it was a time of suffering that, that led to that. Um, again, Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he lists these four, and then uh, Tim Keller, another four. But he, he says, here's how God uses adversity. And you might think about your own life or people in your own church. But God uses adversity to bring a greater level, level of brokenness in people. And, and with it, the freedom from judging others. A greater appreciation for what he calls the holy unknowing. That is, we, we just simply become more content with, with what we don't know about God. We're more content with mystery because we go through trials and suffering. A deeper ability to wait for God. People who've gone through suffering are just better able to wait on God and more content with what God isn't doing at the moment. And a greater detachment. They're, they're able to let go of things. 
Uh, you know, they're just generally more, often generally more centered people because of what they've gone through in pain. Timothy Keller gives four or more in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which is a really helpful book. Suffering transforms our attitude toward ourselves. It humbles us and removes unrealistic self-regard and pride, so it transforms our character. It changes our relationship to the good things in our lives. We see how some things have become too important and how some things have not been important enough. Suffering strengthens our relationship with God as nothing else can, makes that relationship more genuine, can drive us to pray as we've never prayed before. And it's almost a prerequisite if we're going to be of much use to others. Right? We, we live in a world filled with pain and suffering, so the more pain we've experienced, the better we are able to minister to people <coughs> in pain. I'm going to skip this here. Um, you know, um, let's change that. It should be 2018. We were recently in the Philippines talking to Alvin Luther. He's uh, been ministering in the Philippines for decades. He's 80-something, maybe 87. And uh, one of the people in our party asked him that basic question, Alvin, what, what do you think has helped you grow the most spiritually? And he said, I think the thing that made me grow uh, spiritually more than anything was problems that had to be uh, overcome. And um, we caught them on, on video here on the Problems will make you or break you. So it was pretty remarkable. Here's a guy towards the end of his life. He's been in the mission field in the Philippines, ministering in the jungles to uh, many times to hostile tribes. And uh, the thing that he said helped him grow the most spiritually was problems. They can make you or break you. And he's had many. Yet, he said, he felt like through it all, God's been with him and kept him. And as he reflects on that, yeah, that's, that's what's helped him to grow the most spiritually. Um, excuse me while I, I haven't figured out on these videos how to get from one slide to the next, so I'll just uh, get out of it and get back into it. Um, we showed this slide when we were uh, in a series out of Romans, and I think it's a, a good example of this. Let me play this. As a nine-year-old, I would say my childhood was pretty normal. My dad was in ministry, and it wasn't long before he felt called to do mission work. And I remember him sitting down with me and my brother and asking us what we thought about living in a foreign country. As a nine-year-old, I was clueless as to what that meant, 
but I hesitantly agreed and we thought that was going to be just a great adventure. So before long, we were on our way to Reims, France to help a small and struggling church there. I remember vividly that the day that we boarded the plane, it was in Dallas, Texas, it was January 1967. Just a normal, average American family, and a few hours later, landing in Paris, not as tourists, but as foreigners and strangers, surrounded by a culture that we knew absolutely nothing about. Reims is a city two hours outside of Paris. It is a beautiful city. It is rich in history. There were no English-speaking schools there. My brother and I were separated, and there was no one at my school who spoke English except my principal. To help me learn French, they had put me back into first grade, and my teacher was a very sweet little grandmother. Unfortunately, she didn't know any English either. I didn't communicate for the first several months, um, and it was so it was very lonely because I was not with my age group, number one. I was with first graders instead of fourth graders. Um, and so they knew I was American, and they knew that I didn't speak French, and so pretty much they left me alone. But they would stare because I was the stranger. I was weird. You know, I was the weird one. I was the newcomer, and I couldn't, um, they couldn't talk to me. And so there was not, there was no interaction going on for the first few months. There was no interaction. I had no friends. There was nothing but home. And then when I was there, it was my teacher. Um, and she was only available during recess time to me. So I, I sat in my place and I watched and I listened. And I wondered, what in the world are they talking about? This was my world, my home away from home every day, where I didn't look like anyone else, I didn't sound like anyone else, I didn't fit in with anyone else because I couldn't communicate with anyone around me. For a little girl, this was a scary world. I didn't know at the time, of course, that God was shaping me through all of this, but looking back at those eight years, and especially those first two years, I can see that he was at work in powerful ways in my life. I mean, it, it was very much a faith thing. It was very much. I mean, nine, you know, your faith is really small. You don't, if you've grown up in a Christian home, then you know, you know about faith and you have a faith. You have the beginnings of a faith. Um, and so I did have the beginnings of a faith and I totally relied on that. I mean, I didn't, it wasn't a conscious thing, but I know now looking back on it, that's all I had. Once at home, I had mother and daddy and my brother. But once I left home and I went to school, there was no one there. My parents were not there. My brother was not there. It was me and God and whoever else was around me. That was it. So it was sink or swim. I mean, you just do what you have to do, knowing that it's for a great cause, knowing that you're there on mission. He taught me so many invaluable lessons during that time. Lessons like God is bigger than anything that we can envision. His kingdom is global. He loves people equally, no matter what they sound like or look like. He is at work in every part of the world. He is never far. The blessings that came from my season of uprootedness far outweigh any traumatic experiences that I had, and I wouldn't change a single thing. 
My passion for missions and ministry grew out of the soil of those hard years. Let me just mention a few uh, practices and then we'll uh, move on here. Um, uh, but quickly, in terms of um, addressing this in terms of practices, <coughs> number one, developing your authentic self. Peter Schizero talks about this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Learning to become aware of our feelings, especially our negative feelings, learning to express those feelings and own those feelings is what he calls developing your authentic self. And for many of us, that's a critical first step in having churches where it's okay to do that. Related to that is the practice of lament. Walter Brueggemann writes a great deal about this in his books on the Psalms. We need to create communities where lament is an appropriate practice and a regular practice, helping people express those difficult, dark feelings to God in community. And then uh, surrender. Um, Ignatius of Loyola uh, writes extensively about this and the idea of learning to just let go. There's so many things in life that we have to uh, let go. And so we, we don't have the time today to really kind of uh, talk in detail about those, but those are three, three practices that I think would be helpful. The Holy Spirit is another of these three legs that Dallas Willard says as he reflects on scripture and Christian experience. And of course, there's uh, so much here that could be said about the Holy Spirit. Where I'll focus on is the idea of listening to the Holy Spirit. So the bottom line here would be to engage in practices that enable you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Engage in practices that enable you to listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to skip these slides right here and go to this one. Adam McHugh has a book called The Listening Life. The Listening Life. It's a wonderful book. And in that book, he says this, listening is the central act of the people of God. And listening is the first act of discipleship. And really, he's written the entire book with that premise. That listening is the first act of discipleship. It is the central act of the people of God. And that is especially true when it comes to the Holy Spirit. So, McHugh says, throughout the Bible, listening is the central act of the people of God. The centerpiece of Israel's prayer life, the Shema, begins with the word, Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul reminds us that hearing must come before faith. The Apostle James famously counsels his hearers to be quick to listen, slow to speak. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, we start to violate the natural order of things. Speaking our minds and asserting ourselves take priority over listening. We interrupt someone else because we're convinced we already know what he or she is going to say. We begin to take up more space than we allow for others. We consider ourselves experts on topics 
without anything more to learn. We tell God what to give rather than asking what God wants to give. We speak volumes, but we listen in snippets. And he goes on to say that uh, we may not hear from God because our lives are either too loud or too quiet. And what he means by that, too loud, is kind of obvious that there's too many things going on in our lives, we're too distracted. And so God, God's quiet voice and the quiet voice of the Spirit just can't get in. God's always speaking, the Spirit is always speaking, but our lives are just too loud, we can't hear. Uh, what he means by too quiet is this. And I think this is an interesting point. The Holy Spirit, it turns out, is not a hapless talk show host chattering about everything under the sun, hoping that a few people will turn, tune in to the right frequency. Instead, God's word comes most often to a certain kind of person seeking to lead a certain kind of life. As much as I enjoy the idea of sitting with God on a porch swing, sipping lemonade and chatting about the weather, the better image may be a soldier in the heat of battle, in constant communication with his commanding officer. His point here is that for many of us, our lives are too quiet. That, that is, we're not engaged in the mission of God. And we're most likely to hear the Spirit when we're engaged in the mission of God. So one of the reasons we may not be hearing the Spirit is that we're not engaged in the mission of God. If we were out there in battle, we'd be, we'd be hearing the Spirit. If our churches were engaged in the mission of God more, they might be hearing the voice of the Spirit. You notice how many times the Spirit speaks in the book of Acts. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Acts 8. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Acts chapter 10. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Acts 13. Paul says in Acts 20, Except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And could it be that that same Spirit is longing to guide us and our churches if, if we would listen? And I'm going to skip this as well. Brent Reagan is someone in our congregation who's really tried to give some attention to this in his own life, tried to hear uh, the Spirit and follow what, what he calls are the, the nudges of the Spirit. So I want you to hear his testimony about this. Well, Brent, thanks for joining me and uh, having this conversation about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Sure. And I wanted to start by just seeing if you could share a couple of specific examples and instances in your own life when you felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit sort of prompting you to reach out to someone, talk to someone, do something for someone. Well, first would be uh, late last year. I'm driving to go to lunch and I see, it was pouring down rain and I saw a gentleman on, on sitting at the bus stop on the corner. Uh, it was kind of cold. He had a jacket on. And as I turned to go on Poplar to go to Jason's Deli, I, I, I just thought, man, I, just, I need to do something for that guy. So next thing you know, I, you know, Jesus take the wheel kind of thing. And I, I turned the parking lot and I said, hey, would you like to join me for a bowl of soup? 
and he threw his bag as quick as he could in the car, jumped in the front <laughs> seat, and I, I drive off with a total stranger. Uh, we had a nice lunch, got to know each other. I was able to find out what led him to where he was. And you felt like that was the spirit nudging you to do that? Well, it's not the norm for me to stop and pick up a total stranger. Yeah. You know, so uh, I would say so, absolutely. How about another example? Second one would be uh, a Highland member. A friend was sharing with me that he had some big job changes that it's really weighing heavy on him, What, which one to take. So here I am on the treadmill about a week later, and, and I, his name pops in my head. I'm like, oh, I have to see what's going on. So I stop, and I text him, and I got a response back the next day. It's just a how important that was at the time and the timeliness of it. Uh, he was right in the middle of decision time when that text came through. What's been the result in your own life? So you've, you've been practicing this um, discipline of, of trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. And as, as you sense the Spirit nudging you, you've been trying to follow through with that. How's that been affecting you personally? I guess the result in my life by, by following the nudge is that I have a greater sense of appreciation to be a better listener. I, I want to listen to the Spirit. I want to listen to, to the people I communicate with. Responding with a sense of urgency, if I have a nudge, I am doing my best to respond quickly. I guess the way I approach a nudge is with a much more of a bolder approach. I mean, it's not like me to stop and pick up a total stranger. And that's out of the ordinary. So for me to do that, it, it's, it, it, it's given me, I guess, a little more strength than I had before to, to go where I wouldn't ordinarily go. Just personally, from your own experience, why, why is this so important, this idea of listening to the Holy Spirit and following through on these, these nudges? And we all really appreciate a good someone that's listening to us in conversation. I wonder if God thinks that about us. He's sending these nudges. He's, he's floating these ideas past us. And do we listen with the intent to show our love and respect for him and that's above all else i think that's why i'm trying to make a concerted effort to to take the nudges take them seriously respond to them and in turn uh, that's my way of showing god that i love him and that i appreciate what he's doing in my life In terms of cultivating a life of uh, listening to the Spirit, uh, let me just share uh, these practices here briefly. Mm. There we go. Uh, mindfulness or attentiveness. My, mindfulness is kind of a hot word this day, so I want to be sure I've got that working here. <laughs> Mindfulness or attentiveness, but 
just becoming aware of and following through on nudges of the Holy Spirit uh, during the day, like uh, Brent talked about in this video. That's a, a great practice. It, it is obviously somewhat subjective. How do you identify a nudge of the Holy Spirit? And we don't have time to talk about that uh, today. But that's a wonderful practice, and I appreciate Brent's um, attention to that. The examine is a wonderful spiritual practice. Essentially, it's taking some time at the end of the day to review the day and consider what God was up to, what the Holy Spirit was up to, in essence. And to uh, sift through the events of the day slowly, prayerfully, thoughtfully, and to give the Spirit some space to say, hey, uh, you, you missed this. I was trying to to get your attention here and you were so distracted or you were so busy and, and so it's, it's really giving the Holy Spirit another opportunity. Mark Thibodeau's book Reimagining the Ignatian Examine is a wonderful resource. He gives 34 variations on a traditional examine and just provides some really fresh ways for you to sit down and review your day in a prayerful thoughtful way that really gives the spirit an opportunity to speak to you about what may have happened during the day that you missed. So the examine. And then solitude or silence or unplugging is still absolutely critical. Taking time to just simply be quiet and be still and uh, allow the Holy Spirit some space in your life to speak up. Um, I took some time Tuesday just to go out to Leo Carrillo uh, Beach and, and just to be uh, quiet, be still, be silent, and let the pelicans and the Holy Spirit uh, speak, speak to me. And uh, those times are very important. So the last one is spiritual disciplines, uh, spiritual disciplines. And so uh, all three of these are critically important. Spiritual disciplines are also critically important. The bottom line here is this. Write and enact a rule of life. Write and enact a rule of life. The word rule comes from Greek for trellis. Trellis. A trellis is a tool that enables a grapevine to get off the ground and grow upward, becoming more fruitful and productive. And so that's what a rule of life does. It's, it's instructing somewhat of a structure so that the growth that you want to see happen in your life can happen. Soul Feast is another great resource by Marjorie Thompson. She says this about a rule of life. A rule of life is a pattern of spiritual disciplines that provides structure and direction for growth in holiness. When we speak of patterns in our life, we mean attitudes, behaviors, or elements that are routine, repeated, regular. Indeed, the Latin term for rule is regula, from which our words regular and regulate derive. And so rule of life is just a, a sitting down, making a, a prayerful statement, covenant with God, saying, these are the habits and practices that I'm going to engage in so that you have more space and opportunity with me to produce the kind of growth that you're interested in. Marjorie Thompson says there are three critical questions to writing a rule of life. 
what am I deeply attracted to and why? Meaning spiritual practices. Not um, what movie star, uh, you know, not that. Uh, but what spiritual practices, it's okay to laugh. Um, <laughs> what am I deeply attracted to and why? What spiritual practices am I deeply attracted to and why? Where do I feel God is calling me to stretch and grow? You know, where in my life, where in my character do I feel the need to stretch and to grow? And what kind of balance do I need in my life? Like balance between, uh, say, um, practices of silence and solitude versus practices of getting out in the community and actually you know, things that are doing uh, and, and being with people. It's sort of that, that kind of balance. So those, those are three helpful questions. But let me point you to this resource here because this is, this is a really uh, remarkable resource. Crafting a Rule of Life by Stephen, and I'm not sure how to say that, Machia, Machia, Machia. I say it with authority. Machia. <laughs> Stephen Machia. But he's written a book, a whole book on this called Crafting a Rule of Life. And I really like what he's done here. He says there are five things to consider as you think about writing a rule of life. Number one, time. And what he includes under time are your spiritual rhythms and practices, what we would call our spiritual disciplines. The things you're going to do each day, the things you're going to do each week, the things you're going to do each month, each quarter, and each year. All that includes under time. So kind of most of us would think, okay, I'm done. But he goes on, he says there's four other things to consider. Number two is trust. These are your relational priorities. Think about the people in your life, kids, parents, grandkids, best friends, others, and include them when writing a rule of life. What are the practices you want to engage in when it comes to the people in your life? That's really helpful. Temple, this includes taking care of your body, your mind, and your heart. This temple right here. So that's pretty helpful. Your self, the self-care of your body, your mind, and your heart. Treasure your financial and material stewardship priorities. He includes that. And then talent, your missional priorities. How's God gifted you and how are you going to use that in service to God and to others? So those five things really, really helpful. Oh, I'm going to skip that. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm going to skip that. I hate that. Last resource here, Adele Calhoun, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, 75 Distinct Spiritual Disciplines. It's the largest resource on the planet for spiritual disciplines. So if you're, if, you know, you're on that third leg of the golden triangle, man, I want to get into spiritual disciplines, but I don't know anything more than prayer and Bible study. What is, is there more than that, really? Adele Calhoun, 75 Distinct Spiritual Disciplines. Uh, so if you pull up this right here, I, I've listed them and described them for you. But you, you really have to get the book or check it out somewhere to get in more detail. But wonderful, wonderful resource. So that is the Golden Triangle. Thanks for being here.